Is the Bible a book of fables, myths, and legends? Are the stories and the heroes of the Bible fictional? Well, many believe so, and they'll often cite some of the evidence supposedly that comes from the world of archaeology in support of their belief. But what does the archaeology actually tell us? You know, archaeologists aren't all of the same opinion about many significant finds. Archaeology, after all, isn't an exact science. It can be subject to interpretation based on people's individual assumptions or premises or their biases. But now, more and more, as archaeological methods improve and as new discoveries are made, significant evidence is mounting that supports the biblical record and the accuracy of the Bible. Today on Life, Hope and Truth Presents, let's look at some incontrovertible proofs from the record of the world of archaeology, both past and present, that support the accuracy of the biblical record. For years, it's been popular to believe that the Bible can't be trusted as an accurate historical record of the past, and archaeology has often been interpreted to support this view. But many times, that supposed evidence from archaeology is actually a lack of evidence from archaeology. For example, uh, because no camel bones had been dug up in the land of Israel that date to the time of the biblical patriarch Abraham, some conclude that camels weren't domesticated in the land of Israel at the time of Abraham. Therefore, the biblical accounts that mention Abraham's camels must be false, made up. And that leads some to say, well, maybe even Abraham himself didn't exist. That argument completely ignores the well-established fact that camels were domesticated animals during that time in the land of Mesopotamia where Abraham came from. So making an argument based on the supposed lack of evidence can be pretty shaky reasoning, and it's always subject to correction if and when more evidence comes to light. One of the major examples of this is the powerful Hittite kingdom, which dominated much of the Middle East in the second millennium BC. The Bible mentions the Hittites 60 times, and it speaks of their power and their influence. But for years, there was minimal historical record of the Hittites outside the pages of the Bible. There just wasn't much evidence that they existed, other than the references in the scripture. The Hittites were never mentioned in the classical Greek or Latin sources. Historians and archeologists couldn't imagine that an empire like that described in the Bible would not leave a trace of evidence in historical records or archeology. span so the skeptics questioned the accuracy of the biblical record, and some questioned the existence of the Hittites at all. An Oxford professor in 1853 said that the Bible's references to powerful Hittite kings were unhistorical. And even the entry on the Hittites in the Encyclopedia Britannica during that period described the Bible statements on Genesis regarding the Hittites as unfavorable to the accuracy of the Old Testament and unworthy of credence. This belief was strongly held among the skeptics, even though a French archaeologist named Félix-Marie Charles Texier had unearthed monumental ruins of an ancient civilization in north-central Turkey back in 1834. No one believed it was evidence of the Hittites. It took 52 years before another archaeologist, Georges Perrault, identified the site as Hattusa, 
the capital of the Hittite kingdom. And still the skeptics doubted, even 20 years later. Despite mounting evidence to the contrary, one of the foremost archaeologists of Europe stubbornly insisted to his friend, Egyptologist Dr. Melvin Kyle, he said, I do not believe there ever were such people as the Hittites. Now, all the while, mounting up was documenting evidence of the empire of the Hittites. Evidence dug out of the ground at the archaeological excavations, both at Hattusa, where they discovered monumental buildings and city gates and a royal archive of more than 10,000 inscribed clay tablets, and likewise at numerous other sites. There was evidence coming from written records, discovered in translations of tablets and documents found in Egypt and in Assyria. Yet in the face of increasing evidence, skeptics still persisted in doubting for years. It's a powerful example of the persistence of preconceived ideas. That even the highly educated wouldn't change their beliefs and admit to the accuracy of the biblical record. Today, no one doubts the historicity of the Hittite Empire. It's recognized as one of the three great powers of the ancient Middle East, alongside Egypt and Assyria. And as more archaeological and historical discoveries have been made, even the small details found in the biblical references to the Hittites have proven to be accurate and consistent with these discoveries. The Bible, it turns out, was right after all about the Hittites. Now, let's look at a particular story in the Bible that, as it turns out, is one of the most amazing, well-attested accounts in Scripture. The details of the biblical story are remarkably well verified in the archaeology. It's the story of the invasion of the kingdom of Judah by the Assyrian king Sennacherib in 701 BC. The biblical king Hezekiah is on the throne of Judah. Hezekiah is a faithful king ruling from his capital in Jerusalem. But he rebels against the powerful Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, who in retribution marches his troops from his capital in Nineveh against Hezekiah. In the Bible, we read that God promises to deliver Hezekiah, but that deliverance comes only after Sennacherib wreaks destruction through all of Judah, including his attack on the city of Lachish, the second most important city in Judah, after the capital, Jerusalem. Now, I visited the site of Tel Lachish, along with volunteers from Foundation Outreach International, who spent three weeks excavating the site in the summer of 2023 under the direction of a Hebrew University professor and archaeologist, Yosef Garfinkel. Today, evidence of Sennacherib's siege of that city is clear and obvious, including remains of a massive siege ramp built by the Assyrian king to bring his army and his battering rams against the city wall. Assyria is described in the Bible as a powerful empire, and yet, like the Hittites, by the time of Jesus Christ, all the physical evidence of its existence had seemingly vanished. So the Bible, for a long time, contained the only record of the Assyrian Empire, Sennacherib, and even Nineveh, one of its capitals. The only record of Sennacherib's attack was what we had in the Scripture. Now this changed, though, in the 1800s, when Paul Emil Botta discovered the ruins of the ancient Assyrian capital, and Sir Austin Henry Layard also excavated Nimrud and Nineveh. 
they found Sennacherib's palace and his own accounts of his campaign against Judah and King Hezekiah. They found a room in Sennacherib's palace with walls that had remarkably detailed carved panels depicting the attack and the capture of Lachish. There were 16 stone panels in all, covering an area 8 feet tall and 40 feet long, telling the story of the conquest of Lachish. Ten of the panels were removed from where they were found in the palace, and they're on display at the British Museum in London. Archaeologists also found a hexagonal clay prism. Ultimately, they found three clay prisms, all inscribed with Sennacherib's glorious accounts of his military campaigns, including his campaign against Hezekiah. These finds corroborated the biblical account in every detail. Sennacherib massed his army, and he marched on Judea, conquering city after city as he went, until only Jerusalem was left. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13 says this, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, and he took them. In his boastful account on the Sennacherib prism, the Assyrian king put it this way, Sennacherib, the great king, the mighty king, the king of the world. As for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured 46 of his fortified cities, along with many smaller towns taken in battle with my battering rams. I took as plunder 200,150 people, both small and great, male and female, along with a great number of animals, including horses, mules, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep. Well, the wall reliefs that were found at the palace in Nineveh, they graphically depict the siege engines and the battering rams being brought up against Lachish, along with depictions of the captives and the plunder being brought before the king. Today, the archaeological site at Tel Lachish reveals the city walls and the massive siege ramp that was built by Sennacherib's army in order to attack the city. And the excavations, they revealed the destruction that was caused by the attack. The siege of Lachish is now well attested by archaeology. With all his fortified cities lost, and Lachish, his second most important city in Judah under siege, Hezekiah offers tribute to the king. 2 Kings 18, verse 14. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. On the most well-known of the three Sennacherib prisms, the Taylor prism, which was named after its discoverer, Colonel R. Taylor, the Assyrian inscription records, He, Hezekiah, overwhelmed by my majestic awe, he sent to Nineveh, my capital, 30 talents of gold. Well, while still occupied at Lachish, Sennacherib sends his trusted aides with a detachment of his army to threaten Hezekiah that Jerusalem is next and that he should surrender himself and his city. They try to instill fear and panic in the people, and they deny that the people have the power to stand against Sennacherib. They insist that they can't trust in their ally Egypt, 
or even in God to save them. Well, Hezekiah, he cries out to God for deliverance, and he receives assurance through the prophet Isaiah that Jerusalem will be spared through God's miraculous intervention. 2 Kings 19, verses 6 and 7. And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he will hear a rumor, and he will return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Now dropping down to verse 34. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away. He returned home and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his god, that his sons, Adramelech and Sherazar, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And then Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Now you can imagine that Sennacherib would not be inclined to record such an embarrassing defeat on his palace walls or in the records of his great military victories. But history shows that he did break off his siege against Jerusalem, and he did return to Nineveh, and he stayed there long enough to engrave on the walls of his palace the magnificent story of his successful siege against Lachish, the second most important city in Judah. If he had been successful in capturing Jerusalem, well, he certainly would have boasted on that accomplishment. But he couldn't, so he put the best spin on it that he could. He recorded on the Taylor prism, As for Hezekiah the Judite, himself like a caged bird I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city. I threw up earthworks against him, that one coming out of the city gate, I turned back to his misery. In other words, the best he could do was initiate a siege against Jerusalem. He couldn't capture it, just as the scripture records. This archaeological find of the Sennacherib prisms clearly supports the biblical record, even to the point of tacitly acknowledging the miraculous deliverance that God provided for Hezekiah at that time. As for Isaiah's prophecy that Sennacherib would die by the sword in his own land, well, that came to pass a number of years later when Sennacherib's own sons assassinated him and one took his throne. The archaeology and the historical records clearly show the Bible to be an accurate and a true record of this historical event. Now, there's one more element to this story that illuminates how archaeology supports the scripture. When Hezekiah knew that Sennacherib was on the march and that he was sure to attack Jerusalem, Hezekiah undertook major efforts to defend and prepare his city to withstand the siege. He built an additional massive wall to help protect the city. Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 5 says this, And he strengthened himself, built up all the wall that was broken, raised it up to the towers, 
and built another wall outside. Also he repaired the Milo in the city of David, and he made weapons and shields in abundance. You can actually see the remains of that wall today, being excavated in the old city of Jerusalem. And he also dug a tunnel to divert the water from the Gihon Spring, which is Jerusalem's water source outside the city, to bring the water from outside the city walls into the city itself. They needed to both deny the invading army any easy access to water during their siege, as well as to assure their own water supply. So 2 Chronicles 32, verses 2 through 4, say that, When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come, and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and his commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. Thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs and the brook that ran through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? So they stopped up the water, flowing outside the city, but they also needed to assure their own water supply inside the city. They had to bring the water from the spring that was outside the city walls into a pool inside the city walls. Well, this was a massive project. They had to dig a tunnel underneath the hill on which the city was built, from one side of the hill to the other. There's just a brief mention of this remarkable engineering project in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all his might and how he made a pool and a tunnel and he brought the water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Hezekiah organized two teams of diggers. One would start digging from the spring and the other would start digging from where the pool was located inside the city so that they would meet in the middle. This tunnel, today known as Hezekiah's tunnel, is 1,700 feet long, and it still brings water from the Gihon Spring outside the city on the east into the Pool of Siloam, which was inside the city walls. It's a popular tourist destination in the city of David in Jerusalem, where today you can still walk the length of the tunnel that was dug 2,700 years ago. The original Pool of Siloam, though, had been lost. It had been buried under earth and rubble over centuries as the city of Jerusalem suffered through the destruction of repeated wars throughout its history. But then in 2004, a municipal repair project in the city of Jerusalem accidentally rediscovered it. And since then, the Pool of Siloam has been an active archaeological site. Now, the full extent of the project that was first begun under Hezekiah is coming to light. The pool that Hezekiah built is being unearthed. Later, after the time of Hezekiah, the Pool of Siloam was the site of a miracle that was performed by Jesus, as is recorded in the Gospels. And once again, archaeology is revealing details and corroborating the stories that we find recorded in the Bible. You can learn more about how archaeology supports the Bible, and you can be reassured of the authority and the reliability of the Bible as a book you can trust both as a historical text and as the inspired Word of God. Just go to our website at lifehopeandtruth.com. We have links on the show notes to articles there on archaeology in the Bible, on how archaeology illustrates the Scripture, and even how archaeological finds may confirm Bible prophecy. You can be reassured 
that the Scripture is the accurate and true Word of God. Now I know, skeptics like to dismiss the Bible as something that's less, something that's just stories, myths, and fables. But that's a mistake, and we can't afford to do that. The Bible is true, and it is accurate in its history, and if the Bible is historically accurate, you need to consider even more significantly that it is spiritually accurate and a reliable, up-to-date, eternal guide for your life. Check the show notes and download our booklet, Is the Bible True? For Life, Hope, and Truth, this is James Capo. We'll see you next time.